0: Hey there and welcome to episode six of Silver Screeners, a podcast devoted to love for the movies, the comedies, dramas, new releases, the classics, but I always follow these words of wisdom from actress Lauren Bacall, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it, so maybe you'll hear me in this show use the words classic or legendary or iconic, but you will never ever hear me use the word old. I'm Frank, vocally coming through your device from Massachusetts, and thank you continuing to hit that play button. Well, we're launching into June. Theatres are ready to begin screening some new films from their projection booths and volumes that we have not seen in quite some time. We've had a few sporadic releases, Tenet from last summer comes to mind, but most theaters were not even accessible anyway in a lot of areas at that time. So now where are we? We're looking at a more typical slate of films scheduled for release in traditional theaters, some simultaneously on video on demand, yeah, but most of us are at a point where there are or there are about to be more viewing options for us so one upcoming release that i'm reservedly intrigued by is the conjuring three or to give the full official title the conjuring the devil made me do it and i know to be candid, it's not the most sophisticated of titles if it hopes to be taken seriously but the whole franchise began with a bang with the 2013 original, but in my opinion anyway, it has been sputtering along on uncreative and formulaic fumes over the last few entries. Don't even get me started on the none, so <laughs> there is definitely a wonky track record with this franchise, if we're to be honest, and if I'm going to try to put it as nicely as I possibly can. The first one came out of nowhere, but rightfully turned into a bonafide smash hit in the summer of 2013. You know, I mean, I was sitting there in the theater, not thinking about anything in terms of a franchise. I was just letting the story happen. I was thinking, you know, wow, this is awesome. The same director as Insidious, which came out three years earlier in 2010. And that was well-crafted. But here with The Conjuring, I thought even better because The Conjuring, at least it said on the screen, is a true story. Vera Famiga and Patrick Wilson playing real-life paranormal investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren. They're both deceased now in real life, but they built a career on lectures and investigations and television and radio appearances. She was a so-called light medium, a clairvoyant, and he, the only non-ordained demonologist that the Vatican, the Catholic Church, officially acknowledged. They came to my college to give a lecture my freshman year, and a group of us went out of curiosity. I had never heard of them before then, so this would have been the early or mid-1990s. I specifically remember the guy next to me in the audience rolling his eyes and muttering how they were full of BS and whatnot. Hey, fine, but another one of my friends I remember got so caught up in it that afterwards he was going on about wanting to read up on them and at the time, I sort of fell somewhere in between. I didn't know what to believe, but, I mean, who knows what's out there, but, you know, in a world where we have nine Fast and Furious movies, who's to say what's messed up? But getting back to The Conjuring, I'm watching this movie in the summer of 2013, and I'm remembering that lecture, and I'm getting properly traumatized. Oh, by the way, <laughs> did I mention uh, that it was a second-run theater, so there was nobody else at that particular showing? An empty, echoey movie theater auditorium. I loved it it had been so long at that point since a horror movie for me anyway created some genuine tension then I saw the second one Conjuring 2 three years later not as much of an impact but still a skillfully shot and edited film that I do recommend that you give a whirl speaking to the franchise's spin-offs, the Annabelle films had a couple of good moments but overall I mean glorified Chucky Redux the Nun, I had more fun slamming my fingers in the car door when I was four. I don't know. These all fractured the intelligent style and dramatic weight that you have in the first Conjuring, and to an extent, the second one as well. These offs they came out of the gate guns blazing with the reputation of The Conjuring and of James Wan to stand on, but... I'm still waiting for New Line Cinema and Warner Brothers to send us all a collective trophy for sitting through them to the end. The jump scares got tired. I'm speaking of the spin offs. The jump scares got tired. The stories progressively more and more flat and formulaic and nowhere near enough of a rudimentary sense of surprise or unpredictability that a genre like that really needs if you're to maintain the audience's engagement. And that brings us to The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. I'm gonna keep my expectations in check. <laughs> now, what's promising is that for this third one, they are wisely taking the series into greener pastures. not a haunted house tale like the first two, but instead, it's a court case, a murder trial where the defense is demonic possession. And like the first two, the story this time around is said to be true, straight from their case files, both Ed and Lorraine Warren, as I said, they're both now deceased, but, both went to their graves defending the authenticity of these cases that they investigated over the course of their admittedly controversial careers. Now, The Devil Made Me Do It does have a few more things going for it, at least on paper. For one, David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick wrote the screenplay. This is the same one, the same guy who did the. He wrote The Conjuring Two one of the stronger entries in the franchise he also wrote a handful of episodes of the AMC series The Walking Dead also good is that both Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson they're returning as Ed and Lorraine Warren which does give consistency and hopefully some sense of coherence to the whole affair so the premise has been kept pretty tightly under wraps but what we do know is that there is a murder that has been committed and a young boy, maybe teenage, he's supposedly possessed by a demon. So there's a trial, a murder case. And it's apparently the first time in U- U.S. legal history when demonic possession was offered up as the defense. At least it's a fresh spin on things. It could give the tired franchise a recovery, a, a solely needed jab of energy in its audio visual arm, or, or it could be the whimpering death knell. Time will tell. The fact that demonic possession is apparently what's driving the narrative, that may in and of itself be a groaner for some audiences, seeing as how, when it comes to movies that dive into that kind of territory, let's face it, everything over the past 48 years has been inexorably linked to The Exorcist. Cheap knockoffs and paltry imitations have been churned out by the Hollywood factory now for nearly half a century and counting just check out the bargain bin at your local Dollar Tree store, if you don't believe me. Uh, Some of these movies, guilty pleasures, some of them not fit to wipe the dirt from those tabloids at the checkout counter at your local Dollar Tree store. I'm not kidding myself. I know that I'll see it at one point or another, but if there is one lesson that I learned well from the nun, do a matinee when the tickets are a little cheaper. So thank you for the savings, sister psycho. Uh, So that's The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, releasing in theaters and on HBO Max on June 4th here in the U.S., as well as Canada, Spain, Finland, Norway, and Sweden. And on May 26th in the U.K. and in Ireland. So, okay, let's keep things moving right along. Next segment for today's show, this week's trivia question. The original Conjuring focuses, the original now, focuses on a real-life family of five, by the name of Perron, P-E-R-R-O-N. Right as they moved into an old colonial farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island, they noticed that they were not alone. In the movie and in real life, Ed and Lorraine Warren, they came to investigate to try to determine what was going on, what was happening in the house, name the location of the other allegedly haunted house that they famously investigated. It's here in the States, it's worldwide famous. There have been books and movies about it since the mid to late 1970s. And that's all I'm gonna tell you. So for a personalized meme and a shout out, email your guesses to frankmandoza at yahoo.com. You can post a private message me on Twitter. The Twitter handle is filmbuff1974. If you want to go the Instagram way, that's frankmendoza1974. You can also join or post to my public Facebook film group, same name as this show, Silver Screeners. And if you want to get in touch through email, again, that's frankmendoza at yahoo.com, spelled, Mendoza spelled with an A and an S. So take a crack at answering that trivia question, and no matter what, you'll get a shout out. A no-strings-attached plug for anything that you want to put out there. A podcast of your own, a vlog, a YouTube series, a book you wrote, music you've written, a website, whatever. People help people out. And I want to do that. So even if you give the wrong answer, hey, you know, even if you don't give an answer at all, if you simply want to say hello, if you want to offer your feedback on this show, if you want to agree or disagree with my take on anything that we talk about here, if you want to give me some recommendations, if you have any requests at all, anything movie related, you'll still get a shout out and a personalized meme sent your way, whether you have anything to promote or not. So one more time, the question is, name the location of the other allegedly haunted house that Ed and Lorraine Warren investigated in the 1970s, not The Conjuring House. There's one last order of business before we dive into this week's subject. So let's round the corner to the announcement of the winners of last week's trivia question. Last time we talked about 1986's Stand By Me, directed by Rob Reiner, who the following year in 1987 would direct a fantasy comedy adventure tale that was not a hit but has gained a cult following over the years? The correct answer is The Princess Bride and congratulations once again to Zach from down in Florida at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Congratulations to my friend Drew who has his own YouTube channel, Drew Bennett. He's got a daily vlog on life, family, Entertainment, travel, comic books, video games, and toys, especially toys. It's all there. Check it out. You'll know you reached it on YouTube when you see a logo that is labeled Ben Spark Family Adventures. And also answering correctly, my friends from Britain give it up for Stu and Al. They have a podcast of their own called Stu and Al Pod. So check that show out, Stu and Al Pod, which releases a new episode every two weeks. They deliver the goods with comedy, with 90s throwbacks, top three countdowns of a whole bunch of different things, so tip of my hat and respect to all of you, Zach, Drew, Stu and Al, and a personalized meme from The Princess Bride is coming your way, so keep an eye open in your inboxes or private social media messages, and thank you for playing. Are you ready? Because I sure as hell am. Let's dive into the main focus of this week's episode they're here the stories and behind the scenes facts about 1982's poltergeist that paranormal fright fest that was a hbo mainstay back in the day after its theatrical run of course so how did in the movie poltergeist how did these lost souls who for whatever reason are not at rest and also not aware that they have passed on not part of consciousness as we know it lingering in a perpetual dream state a nightmare from which they cannot awake in case you haven't guessed it yes i completely quoted the movie that is a line of dialogue spoken by the character tangina barons who is a psychic a clairvoyant but let's not get too ahead of ourselves the premise of poltergeist is that you have These spirits from the other world, they come to invade the comfortable, all-American home of two groovy parents who spend their together time at night in bed rolling joints, their sassy, rebellious teenage daughter who returns from dates with hickeys in her neck and is familiar with area motels, their Star Wars-loving, tree-hating young son who's afraid of thunderstorms, But is comforted by his pot smoking papa who is as high as a cloud as he throws this innocent kid over his shoulders for a piggyback ride back to bed and is relatively zoned out as he exhales i'm the wind and you're the feather and even when i was eight years old i'm watching this thinking to myself what the hell is wrong with this guy i did not know if the parents are supposed to be leftovers from the 60s It was 1982 after all, when this movie first came out, but the dad's reading a biography on Ronald Reagan. So then again, maybe not. (laughs) Um, Maybe I'm just picking too many nits here, but uh, oh yeah, there is a five-year-old daughter named Carol Ann, (laughs) can't forget Carol Ann. So here we go, 35-year-old Steven Spielberg. He is riding high with hits like Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind under his belt probably licking his wounds from the disaster that was his 1979 Turkey, a comedy called 1941. But he made a nice recovery. He has Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. in the pipeline and an idea for this haunted house story. So let me first tell you a little bit about his background. He grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona. He had three younger sisters and like a lot of older brothers, he delighted in scaring the hell out of them. One of his sisters said that he would draw skulls on the chalkboard and he would challenge them to sleep through the night with the skull on the chalkboard without erasing it. Keep the chalkboard in your room and let's see how long you'll last. They did not make it. The mother came in and would erase the skull. But Spielberg himself, he had his own fears. He was terrified of clowns and trees, especially one particular tree in the family's backyard. And We will be coming back to that, but here it is, 1980, and he wants to set his ghost story in a Southern California suburb, not a mansion or a castle or anything that at the time was overdone like that. He brings his idea to MGM. MGM buys it right on the spot. They snatch it up. The thing of it is, is that Spielberg was under contract with Universal Studios to direct E.T., which meant that directing Poltergeist was out of the question. He could not direct both but he could produce Poltergeist, so voila. A director by the name of Toby Hooper got the gig. He was most known for the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre back in the early 70s. The Mark Victor and Michael Grace were hired to write the screenplay. Spielberg actually had them meeting with real-life self-proclaimed psychics and ghost hunters up the wazoo. He wanted them to get a feel for what this world was like. And one other thing... The two writers, Mark Victor and Michael Grace, they wanted there to be death in the film. They wanted to kill out the whole family. Spielberg's reaction was say what? So they came to a compromise. He said, okay, you can have one death. The two writers looked at each other and practically immediately grinned and said to each other, a little girl. So ironically, <laughs> the Carol Ann character was initially not going to survive Poltergeist. Of course, what we got with the final product was that the family did live to see another day, and a sequel, and then another sequel. But, okay, the cast, Jo Beth Williams plays the family matriarch, Diane Freeling. At that point, she was probably best known for her brief but memorably splashy role in Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, She claims that she has had paranormal experiences of her own, even before doing Poltergeist. She was doing summer Sock Theater in New Hampshire. She was in her room at a bed and breakfast kind of a place where the whole company of actors was actually staying together. And the bed started shaking. She didn't know what was going on. The following morning, she went downstairs for breakfast and said to the woman who owned the house, was there an earthquake or something last night? And the woman replied, oh, that's just our ghost. No big deal. I would have been there like, already, I'm out of here, but... She stayed on. (laughs) She had done a film called Star Crazy, and no, I've never seen that one either, (laughs) with actor Craig T. Nelson. So she liked him, and so she recommended Craig T. Nelson to Spielberg, who also liked him. So Craig T. Nelson was brought on board as the father, Steven Freeling. The late actress, Dominique Dunn, and child actor, Oliver Robbins, they signed on as Dana and Robbie, the first two of the three kids and the late Heather O'Rourke, then just five years old, she was the last one to be cast. She plays the youngest of the three. She plays Carol Ann. She does not have an incredible amount of screen time, but her character really provides the, the thrust of the narrative. According to Jo Beth Williams, who plays the mother, Diane, Heather O'Rourke was a natural at feeding off of the rest of the cast members on screen terror, they'd be screaming or hollering or whatever, to the point where Jo Beth Williams got a little bit worried. So she turned to O'Rourke at one point after they finished a take and she said, You know, honey, I'm just acting, right? And Heather O'Rourke apparently looked at her and said, I know, so am I. She said, oh, okay, I guess I'll back off. So, oh, you know who read for the role of Carol Ann was another child actor you probably have heard of, someone by the name of Drew Barrymore. Spielberg did not think that Drew Barrymore was right for Carol Ann, but he kept her in mind for the other project that he had going on at the same time, a little fantasy that went on to change the face of cinema called E.T. So Drew Barrymore did just fine. Academy Award winner Beatrice Strait joined the cast as a psychologist who dabbles in paranormal investigating as a hobby. She is a fine stage actress. She's a Tony winning actress. She won the Tony Award back in the 1950s, for the Broadway production, the original Broadway production of The Crucible. She plays Elizabeth Proctor in that famous Salem witchcraft trial themed drama by Arthur Miller. Unfortunately, here in Poltergeist, her role is about as flat as a pancake. She's asked to deliver lines that got me laughing so hard I was shaking like a pimp in a cathedral. You try saying with the utmost earnestness lines like, Ghosts are just like at school. Some kids are nice to you and some kids are mean. And she's got to whisper this line so as not to wake up the other characters who are all camped out around her in the living room since no one wants to go upstairs. Granted, with damn good reason, no one's going upstairs. So filming began in May of 1981 in Simi Valley, California, a city that borders the San Fernando Valley. It's about 40 miles north of Los Angeles. But let's go back to Toby Hooper, the director, and his participation in all of this. He and producer Steven Spielberg, they had their issues and their creative differences. And it was getting pretty sticky. Zelda Rubinstein, who plays Tangina Barons, she said, quote, I believe he had a vision as director, sadly different from that of Steven Spielberg. Very frequently, Steven made adjustments to the shots that Toby had set up. Joe Beth Williams, who plays the mother, Diane Freeling. She was very diplomatic. She went on to say, quote, I'm sure it was hard for Toby at times because Stephen is very strong. He's a very strong personality. His knowledge is just sort of breathtaking. And he was there at the time. I think you could really feel that Stephen was very actively involved. And I'm sure that was very frustrating for Toby. Toby certainly had his fair share of input too. It was clear that we were working with both of these people. It didn't affect me. I was happy to have both of them around. If there were resentments, they were kept from me." End quote. So production rolled along from May through August of 1981. And once Toby Hooper called cut for the last time, James Kahn, not the actor, this is James Kahn spelled K-A-H-N. He was hired to write a novelization of the screenplay. And the novel really takes the story into some interesting, into some different directions from the, uh, from the film itself, but we'll save that for another time. Spielberg now had to face off against the Motion Picture Association of America. That organization that slaps the ratings on those films, rated G for general audiences, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, The dreaded R rating, which would have been the death knell for ticket sales, R for restricted. No one under 17 admitted without a parent or legal guardian. There was no PG-13 at the time. Now, Poltergeist was scheduled to be a June 1982 release, a summer release, the blockbuster season. MGM Studios really wanted the PG rating, which makes sense because they wanted to be able to sell as many tickets as possible. They eventually did win, as unbelievable as it may seem, and Poltergeist got the PG rating. Then, the marketing campaign kicked in during the months leading up to the June 4th release, and guess what? It was billed as a Steven Spielberg production. None of the marketing materials singled out the name of Toby Hooper as the director, and he was pissed so spielberg took out a full page ad in variety with a letter to toby hooper saying quote i enjoyed your openness in allowing me as a producer and a writer a wide berth for creative involvement just as i know you were happy with the freedom you had to direct poltergeist so wonderfully end quote well, the critics gave Poltergeist some pretty favorable reviews overall. The audience has made it a hit. Little Heather O'Rourke, she became a celebrity, especially with that famous tagline, it beca- her line of dialogue. She's staring at the static on the TV screen. She holds her hands up to it, and she eerily proclaims, they're here, and that became the film's tagline on the movie poster. According to Heather O'Rourke's mother, her real-life mother, she said that the one thing that Heather told her, I don't know why people want my autograph, it's just my name in writing. So she apparently, Heather O'Rourke liked Sylvester Stallone at the time, so her mother said to her, well, if you got someone's autograph you really like, is that important to you? And Heather said, oh yes. So the mother said to her, well, that's how you add other kids. So she never refused an autograph, she was never rude or anything, but she didn't think that she was anything special, at least according to her mother. As for Zelda Rubenstein, who played Tangina Barons, she was approached in the supermarket by somebody who saw the movie and walked up to her and said, oh, could you please take a look at my house? Uh, No, ma'am, I can't, I'm so sorry, Skrubal City. So (laughs) Poltergeist made an impact, E.T. Unfortunately for Poltergeist, came out exactly one week later, and it trumped it at the box office. ET became number one, and Poltergeist did extremely well. But Spielberg knocked himself out of the number one slot. Now Poltergeist went on to become a you know a well well performing movie throughout the summer months. It had its time in the spotlight. By the time the fall rolled around, you know other movies were coming out, and life goes on. And that's when tragedy struck. I should mention this. On October 30th of that same year of 1982, the actress who plays the oldest of the three kids, Dana, actress's name, Dominique Dunn. She was up and coming. She was signed on to do the television miniseries V. She was murdered by her abusive ex-boyfriend. He came to her door and she stepped outside. And as they were arguing outside, he physically attacked her. He strangled her and she ended, she was put on life support. She was taken off life support a few days later. So that was the first in a long series of sudden and tragic incidents that shocked cast and crew giving birth to what is called the poltergeist curse and i'll get into that more in a bit too uh but first let's finish talking about the reception of the first one now toby hooper the director and steven spielberg neither one of them was interested in doing a sequel and when they made the first one no one in the cast was officially signed on one signed off for one mgm of course had different plans once they saw how much the original was loading up the studio coffers the same two screenwriters agreed to come back for Poltergeist 2, the other side. They knew that what they needed to do was to try to reunite the original cast as much as possible. Craig T. Nelson, he said, well, the money, it was great. Never made a check like that in my life. He signed on for the sequel. Joe Beth Williams, they made me a financial offer that I couldn't refuse, she said. And I read the script and it was Craig again and the kids again, so I agreed to do it. Now, in the novelization of Poltergeist II, they accounted for Dana's absence, the oldest sister, by having her character be off at college, having cut ties with her family, off to college as far east as she could get. In the film, there is no mention whatsoever of the character at all, which I don't know. I don't know if it was the wishes of her family. I don't know if it was a creative decision. Either way, it felt kind of, I don't know, like a slight to the, uh, to the character. But again, if it was the family's decision, then I respect that. If it wasn't, then, I mean, who knows? But there is no mention of Dana at all. It's as if the character never existed in the first one. Heather O'Rourke, the golden ticket to the poltergeist dream factory, she eagerly came back. As did Zelda Rubinstein, as Tangina, as did Oliver Robbins, who played the middle child Robbie. Now, when I was a little kid, when number two first came out in 1986, I was freaked out by it and held it in high regard and thought it was the greatest horror movie ever, and thought it was so much better than the first one, you know. And to this day, Julian Beck, God love him, he plays the Spectre of an 1800s era minister reverend henry kane and he delivers this wicked freaky turn as this as this evil entity i mean he is intense and i didn't know it at the time at first but it didn't take long before the information surfaced that the actor was actually terminally ill at the time of filming it was his final acting role and the fact that he didn't get any kind of posthumous recognition, not even a Saturn Award nomination—that's the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films—no nomination. no, I mean, that's criminal. That's just criminal because he is, his—he delivers such a memorable, memorable turn. He makes the movie. But as for the sequel itself, as for Poltergeist Two: The Other Side, I look at it now and it's like. <coughs> As for the third one, they did go on to make a Poltergeist 3. It's like going 85 down the wrong way of a one-way street. And then of course there was the 2015 remake. I saw that one and I will give that to a had pass. So send in your responses to the trivia question. Give me a reason to look at my inbox and my socials, so that I can say they're here with good reason rather than sounding like some evolutionary mishap. Thank you for tuning in. Send in your requests for topics for future shows. Share your thoughts on The Conjuring. The Devil Made Me Do It. Share your thoughts on Poltergeist. Share your thoughts on the so-called Poltergeist curse. I don't want to get too morbid, so I'm not going to get too really much more into it. All I will simply say is that I should mention Heather O'Rourke. She died before production of Poltergeist 3 was finished. She died at the age of 12. It was natural causes. She was ill, and that cemented the series as a quote-unquote series you know how the publicity machine always kicks into high gear this is this is a series that nobody will want to get involved with untimely deaths and tragic accidents and most of the people involved in the series all said bs that's just the publicity machine kicking into hyper overdrive so always happy to hear from people and send in your responses until next time keep on screening and i will see you